you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we'll read the first 20 verses. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we are just grateful to to know that the eternal word, the Son of God, existing with you in perfect fellowship and power from before the beginning, took on flesh and humbled himself and became a man and went even further and went to the cross. We didn't deserve this wonderful gift, but we receive it by faith. And this morning I pray that you would Open up this passage to us, help us to understand the the things that you have for us out of your word and uh, that you would change us, Lord, and, and build us up in that faith. And if there are any here today who do not know you and do not have your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would arrest their attention and draw them to yourself today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have kids, you'll agree that the birth of your firstborn child is one of the most significant occasions 
in your life. For me, it's in the top three, right up there with the day that I was born again and with the day that I got married. I have never been more intensely proud than the day my first child was born. Proud of my wife, proud of my new baby girl, honestly, proud of myself, even though I didn't really do anything but sit there and eat snacks. But on that day, and in the week or two following, it felt like the world stopped, and everybody needed to know that the most important, glorious event ever to happen had just occurred. Everything took second place to my little girl, and Mandy and I and our families tried our best to mark the occasion. Back then, we didn't have a lot of money, unlike today. But we, if we could do something to make it seem like real royalty had arrived, we did it. The nursery was decorated to a ridiculous degree. An array of luxurious blankets were folded neatly in the closet. There were fine-smelling lotions and cute pajamas and the expensive diapers and more fancy church dresses than our little girl would even be able to wear before she outgrew them. And, and just days after we left the hospital, it was time for pictures. So we loaded up the diaper bag and carefully placed the new shiny car seat into our 97 Saturn coupe. And we set out for our appointment with a fine, famous, professional photographer whose swanky studio was situated in the back of a J.C. Penney. Now, the dress that was intended for that photo session didn't make it. I'm not going to say what happened to the dress, but the point is that we wanted everybody to think what we thought, that our firstborn child was the most exciting and important person in the entire world. Now, we're just normal people. Can you imagine what really important people go through? Some of you can. Most of us can't. In fact, really think about it. Imagine that you're in charge of all the fanfare surrounding the birth of some really important person's kid, like the Prince of Wales or somebody like that. You, you find out months in advance. Your budget is through the roof. I mean, just no expenses are spared. And you've got all the resources at your disposal and expectations are really high, but you're in charge of making sure that when this baby comes, everybody knows that an important person's child has arrived. But when the time comes, you haven't even made arrangements with a doctor or a midwife. And the hospital rooms are all booked. The baby arrives, but you forgot to buy any outfits, so you wrap them in a crusty old blanket. And you don't tell the heads of state and the celebrities and the A-listers. You tell a crew of, of landscape techs that you happen to meet on the roadside. No offense to landscape people, okay? But as mom and baby lie there resting, it's those, guys, those are the only people that show up at the hospital room to congratulate the, the new parents. That would not be a good thing, right? You would, that's almost like a nightmare, You wouldn't say that you pulled it off, that you succeeded in welcoming this youngster into the world in a way befitting his station in life. You'd probably get in trouble. Most people would would hear about that and would say, man, what a shame. That's bad news. But in our text today, we learn that at the birth of the most important person in existence, this is the sort of thing that takes place. 
His entry into the world is completely at odds with his actual identity as the, as the high king of the universe. But we're all familiar with this passage, right? Because we've seen the Charlie Brown Christmas movie. So we've heard it over and over again. But that familiarity might prevent us from recognizing the shocking nature of what Luke communicates here in Luke chapter 2. It's almost like in Luke's gospel, we're on a roller coaster that starts all the way back in the first chapter. I mean, think back to the first chapter of the gospel of Luke. We start off and we're at a high point. We start with Zechariah the priest. He is an important person doing an important job. He's offering incense in the temple. And an angel of God shows up there in the temple and tells Zechariah he's going to have a baby. That's a big deal. That's glorious and wonderful. And then Zoom, fast forward to the second half of chapter 1, and the angel appears to a young girl named Mary. Mary is the opposite of Zechariah. She is not important. Zechariah is an important guy. She's an unimportant person that nobody would know about if it weren't for this event. And yet, Mary, unlike Zechariah, actually believes the word of the angel when it's first spoken. And then on to Luke 2, we're told the most important person made an important decree. Caesar Augustus says everybody's got to be registered so that I can collect taxes. And then the roller coaster goes back down and we're introduced to Joseph, a humble carpenter from Galilee. Then they go to the city of David. I mean, David's an important person. That's a big deal because David is like the essential Israelite king. King Joseph, or uh, Joseph has uh, a king's blood. Uh, but then back down again. We go back out there with the shepherd. So Luke is taking us on this roller coaster ride. He's obviously trying to emphasize something, and he's emphasizing these mismatched circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. He's a king, but he has a lowly birth. I think that's on purpose. I think Luke means to emphasize the oddness of that. And in fact, that, humble, that the humble circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ aren't just something that's noteworthy, but as is repeated over and over again in this passage, it's actually something to announce as good news. Has that ever occurred to you? That the lowliness of Jesus' birth is actually good news for all the people? Why is that? Why is it that Christ the King should be born when there's no room in the inn, he's got to be laid in a manger, a feeding trough. And yet that situation is good news. This morning I want us to see that there are at least three reasons why this reality isn't a mistake, but is in fact good news for all the people. Here's reason number one. Why is the lowliness of Christ's birth good news? First of all, because it realizes God's promises. Because it realizes God's promises. The fact that the king of the universe was born in a stable and 99.999% of people living in the world at that moment had no idea is good news because it realizes the promises of God. You say, which promises and how so? Okay, we could spend days and days talking about the different ways that the scriptures uh, uh, make promises that are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That's something we do almost every week. But let me just pull on three threads from the Old Testament that I think lie in the background of Luke's account of the birth of Christ. Uh, The first thread starts all the way back in the 25th chapter of the book of Leviticus. 
Now, as you're going back in your mind through the catalog of what you know about the Bible, that's probably not one of those chapters that jumps out at you, right? Uh, uh, Leviticus 25 uh, describes for us a provision in the Old Covenant known as the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee. You say, what is that? How do you spell that? J-U-B-I-L-E-E, the year of Jubilee. Now, this is going to take some explaining, so buckle your seatbelts. It's really a shame that we don't talk about this more because if the Bible were like a building, this would be one of those structural pillars upholding a lot of the story of God's work. The year of Jubilee. A lot rests on this concept. You say, well, what is it? What are you talking about? Okay, under the Old Covenant, uh, God's people, you probably know this, were required to keep the Sabbath. One day in seven, they were required to rest And uh, so they would rest, they would not work on Saturday because they were required to keep the Sabbath. And in fact, that was one of the main signs that showed the entire world, this is the people of God. This is the covenant people of God. What you may not know is that not only every seven days, but every seven years, they were supposed to have a Sabbath, not for the people, but for the land itself. Uh, Every seven years, they were supposed to go Uh, They were supposed to avoid planting anything and plowing and and, and working the land. They were supposed to give the land a rest every seven years. Not only that, but if you take seven sets of seven years, okay, every seven years there's that Sabbath for the land, and then seven of those, that's 49, right? A little math lesson this morning. And the 50th year was supposed to be something like, and I can't think of a better term than this, it was supposed to be like a super Sabbath, all right? Because that was the year of Jubilee. Uh, The 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And not only was the land supposed to get a rest, but the slaves were supposed to be set free. And all of the lands that had been sold in the previous 50 years were to be returned to the original family. So this is something that a lot of people don't know about that's woven into the fabric of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Now think about what that practically means. Imagine you're living back then. And your family was given an inheritance of land by God. And as time goes on, you fall on some hard times and some difficulties. And you're poor and you don't have anything to eat. And the only thing that you have left is that land. And so you sell the land to a neighbor. The neighbor buys the land. But once, at least once in your lifetime, every 50 years, there's a year of jubilee. So every person, every person once in their life gets another chance. Now, what if I told you that your family's poor, you don't have anything, you don't even have any land anymore, and I told you, you get another chance. You get your land back because that land doesn't belong to that person in perpetuity. It's a gift from God to your family. So you're going to get that land back and you're going you're to have another chance. Would you say that if you were in that situation that that would be good news? Good news to the poor. That was good news. The year of Jubilee was a blessing to the people of God, or at least it was supposed to be, because here's what happens. Here's the problem, and this is one of the things that underscores the need for a Savior in the Bible. The problem was that all the way back in that time, the people of the covenant from the very beginning didn't keep the covenant. So think about this. You're supposed to give the land a Sabbath, You get to that seventh year, and you're looking at how much grain and and, and supplies you have in your barn, and you're thinking, okay, am I going to trust God's word, 
Or am I going to do what I can see in front of me and, and try to control my future? And every single time, the Israelites, instead of doing what God said to do, instead of giving the land a rest, they went their own way. They said, no, we're going to do it our own way. We're going to control our future. And they didn't give the land its Sabbath. When that 50th year came, same thing. All those wealthy people who had snatched up all that land, they had hoarded all these different plots of land that really belonged to those families and ought to have been given back after those, those years. Uh, were they going to give them back in the year of Jubilee? No, they didn't do it. They never obeyed this part of the covenant. And so the fact is, the Israelites ignore the word of God. They do it over and over again for centuries until finally God says, you know what? You haven't kept the Sabbath of the land. You haven't kept the year of Jubilee. You haven't set the captives free. You haven't given another chance to these poor families. And so you know what's going to happen? I'm going to give the land a rest. And so for every time they missed that land Sabbath, that Sabbath year, God uh, sent an army in and they brought the, the people of God out of the, people of, of the land of Israel. And they, they were, the land had a rest for 70 years each year. Uh, corresponding to a Sabbath year that they missed. And in the meantime, God's prophets, men like Isaiah, in the passage that we read earlier in the service, they begin to speak about a day in which, hey, God's actually going to fulfill this idea of the year of Jubilee. He's going to give God's people the thing that we've withheld from ourselves for all these long centuries. And and Isaiah says, uh, it's going to be the day of the Lord's favor. It's going to be a day in which good news is preached to the poor. It's going to be a day in which God's true people return to their ancestral lands. Sort of like Joseph does here in Luke chapter 2, right? It's going to be a day in which good news is proclaimed to all people. Kind of like what happens in verse 10 and following in Luke chapter 2. It's going to be a declaration of the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. Isaiah speaks of such a day. And and if you read on in Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to bring this up more than once. He brings it up in Luke chapter 4. He brings it up in Luke chapter 7. So what he's saying is, my arrival, my birth is the announcement that that day is sort of breaking into the present, that God's promises long ago given to the people of God are finally beginning to come to pass. Why is it that the birth of Jesus Christ and all of its lowliness is good news to all the people? It's a signal to us that he's coming to bind up the broken in heart, to give beauty for ashes, to anoint those who mourn with the oil of gladness so that the lowly, the humble, the poor in spirit, the broken ones might be called the oaks of righteousness planted by God's own hand. So here's what that means for you today. If you are desperate, if you're in despair, If you have come to the end of yourself, then you are exactly the type of person to whom this gospel is preached. It's for the desperate. It's for the broken. In your distress, there is redemption. There is healing. But the proud and the greedy and the self-reliant, the rebels who rely on their religion, those who think they know better than the God who made them, he will resist because it's also the day of his vengeance on the proud. The day of Christ's birth is the beginning of the day of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. Now, that's a thread we could follow for a lot longer than we we just did, okay? But it's something that lies in the background of Luke chapter 2. Let me pull on another thread. 
If you were here a few years back, you might remember our study through 1 Samuel, uh, a story that begins with a young woman whose name was Hannah. And, and if you remember, in 1 Samuel, Hannah begins the story, she can't have children. And so she's crying out to the Lord. She's so desperate to have a child that she goes to the sanctuary of God and she's praying and the priest hears her pray and he actually thinks that she's drunk because she's so desperate in her cries to the Lord. And you know the story. God hears Hannah's cries and when she gives birth to Samuel, she breaks out into a beautiful song. Here's what she says. The, the bows of the mighty are broken but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. So in other words, what Hannah does is she celebrates this reversal of fortune, and that thread's gonna go all the way through 1 Samuel, and and Luke picks up on it again here in Luke chapter one and two. If you read the Song of Mary in Luke chapter one, you see the same themes. She's saying the proud are broken and the humble are exalted. Uh, Jesus, the king, He's coming as a, uh, a, a son of a, a poor family. He's, he's coming in the place of the broken. Uh, what does Samuel teach us? That God doesn't look on the outward appearance. God sees the heart. He's not looking for us to impress him. He's looking for us to humble ourselves before him. The lowliness of Christ's birth is good news for all the people because it shows us that God promises to break the pride of men and exalt those who humble themselves before him. Briefly, I'll just pull on one more thread. Some of the specific wording in Luke 2 is suggestive of another structural pillar in the Bible, the great promises made to David in 2 Samuel 7. You remember what happens in 2 Samuel 7? David is the king. He's ruling over God's people. He's been successful in battle. God's blessed his efforts. He's, uh, he's, he's shown that he, that he favors David. He favors his family. And David has this idea. He says to Nathan the prophet, he says, I'm going to build God a house. I'm going to build a sanctuary and put it right here in the capital city that I've just uh, begun to build myself a house in. And Nathan says at first, go ahead and do what God is, is laying on your heart to do. And then the next day he comes back to him and he says, wait a second, I heard from the Lord. God says, I, you, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And God reminds David that he was just a shepherd boy watching sheep and goats in the wilderness and everything he had become, all of his wealth and glory, everything was a gift from God for the sake of God's glory. And then God promised that one day a son was going to be born who would reign in righteousness forever. So when we read in Luke 2 that Joseph takes Mary all the way back to his ancestral land and the city whose streets echoed with the sound of David's flocks walking through the alleys. We're made to realize that the coming king is, in fact, the one who was promised long ago, reliving that rags-to-riches story in which David himself walked with only one difference. David was sort of the shadow. Christ is the real thing. See, the moment when Mary laid Jesus in that feed trough was the culmination of a myriad of God's promises, a promise of a day when the good news would be proclaimed to all men, not just important people, but to all mankind. So my question is, did you know that? Did you know that no matter who you are, no matter where you came from, no matter what has taken place in your life up till now, no matter what you've brought into this room with you, that the good news is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of the universe, the heir of the throne of David, the one who's going to bring the day of Jubilee, 
He is for you. He is your Savior if you'll only receive the free gift of his grace. The lowliness of Christ's birth is good news for all the people because it realizes God's promises. Here's a second reason. The loneliness of Christ's birth is good news because it reveals Christ's mercies. It reveals Christ's mercies. Imagine what you would do if you had unlimited resources, unlimited power, and you were going to enter the world, or you were, you were going to send one of your children into the world. Have you ever seen the movies from uh, the, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Uh, the, the one, the, the, I can't remember which movie it was, but it was in, I think it was the first Thor movie. Thor comes in, and it's been, it's been a while since I've seen it, but he first arrives on Earth, and he starts walking around and inter- interacting with the people, and it's sort of a comical uh, part of the movie, but it, it matches his character. It's obviously meant to be funny, but it's exactly the way that you or I would act if we were somehow superhuman. He, he's walking around the town and interacting with people, and he's expecting them to treat him with respect and honor, and they just act like he's just a weird guy, because that's sort of how he's acting from their perspective, and he gets offended by that. That's how we would be. That's how we would enter into a situation if we had all these unlimited powers and resources. Uh, so imagine you leave this service today, and you go to a restaurant for lunch, but you're not you. You're like an important person, a senator or a recording artist that has a multi-platinum record, or you're a professional athlete, or you're a billionaire you know, tech startup person or something. Don't you think that if you went out into Mineral Wells, and you went to a restaurant, and you walked in the door, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think you would expect to be treated a little differently, with a little more honor and respect than everybody else, a little better than the rest of the people waiting there in the waiting room. But folks, Christ is of infinitely greater dignity and honor than any of those folks, any mythical demigod or a superhero from the movies. He's not just an important guy. He's the most important guy. He's not just a rich guy. He's the richest. He's not just a powerful person. He's all-powerful. But he didn't do what we would be tempted to do. He didn't arrive with spectacle or demand the attention and the obedience of the important people. He came as a baby, unrecognized and unwelcomed by most of the people living. Isaiah tells us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Paul says that being in the form of God, he did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, being born in the likeness of men. Paul says in another place that though Christ was rich, yet he became poor for our sake so that we through his poverty might become rich. The writer of the Hebrews says, Christ despised the shame He considered the shame and the indignity of the suffering he endured as the Son of God made flesh and crucified on a cross as a light thing. He didn't let it stop him from the mission. And what I want to point out is that what Christ did, no one else in your life would do that. No one. He's the only one. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't enter into a situation with that level of humility if you had the means to make it otherwise. And Christ did it. 
Why? Because that's the extent to which his mercy and his grace overflows. He didn't reach down for the people who were this close to measuring up. Like, oh, you're really close. I'm going to come get you because you're close enough to me that I can save you easily. No, he went all the way to the bottom. All the way to those who are the most down and out, to the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the demon-possessed and the lepers and the unclean Gentiles, to people like you and me whose most righteous deeds are like rags of filth. This is the repeated testimony of Scripture about our God. He, it's not just Christ, it's the triune God. He is the Lord, merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. He is overflowing in that loving kindness to a thousand generations. And that's not cheap. That's not pain-free. Christ paid the ultimate price to display his grace and goodness to undeserving sinners. The question is, have you received this Christ? If you open up your hands to receive him, you'll find him to be far more merciful, far more kind, far more gracious than anyone you've ever met before. The lowliness of the birth of Christ is good news for all the people. First, because it realizes the promises of God. Second, because it reveals the mercies of Christ. And thirdly, because it reverses our values. It reverses our values. Here's what I mean. If it's true that the wisest person in the universe was willing to leave aside the wealth and the comfort and the glory and the splendor of heaven for the sake of the salvation of mankind, to bring good news to the lowly and despised, then maybe we ought to question the things that we value as well. Maybe we ought to look at his life and compare it to our life, and if there's a major difference, and for many of us there is, ask Maybe I should change and become like Jesus. Just being honest, uh, when I look at the way I spent my time, the way that I spent my money, the things that I myself uh, find myself thinking about, one of the ways that I answer the question, what does a good life look like, is by achievement and success. Uh, What's a good life when I feel like I measure up to a certain standard, when I feel like I've reached a goal, when I feel like I set out to do something and I succeeded? Man, that's a good feeling to me, at least for a few minutes. That's something that if I am just going into neutral, that's where I end up going. That's a good life. That's what I value. That's what I treasure. And of course, there's a sense in which that's a healthy approach to life. People who think biblically are going to press forward and they're going to try to do what God's called them to do. But, but Christ became a baby. Do you know the, the top type of person who doesn't reach goals in life? Babies. They don't accomplish things. <laughs> they don't set goals for themselves. A, a baby is helpless. I mean, if your kid, you know this is true, because if your kid holds his head up, You act like he just won a powerlifting competition or something like that. I mean, babies are helpless. They need other people. They're weak. Why would Christ take on the weakness of a human baby? Maybe the good life doesn't consist in what I think it consists of. Maybe it's not all about achievement and success. I I like to feel successful. Maybe you're different. Maybe for you it's to be well-known and well-liked. 
You're always checking your social media likes or fretting over whether you worded your text message appropriately. And of course, to a point, that's a good thing too. It's okay. We don't want rude text messages flying around, all right? But for you, you would say, if I'm being honest, a good life is a life in which people know who I am and like me, but Christ wasn't known at all when he was born. He chose that, not to anyone who mattered from a human perspective. Why would he do that? For, for others of you, it's not so much popularity, it's maybe money. You worry so much about money, you imagine that if you just had a little more, life would be good. But Christ had nothing when he was born. In fact, throughout his whole life, he was poor. There were times when he had nowhere even to lay his head. Most people didn't like him. His message was largely unconvincing to the vast majority of people who heard him preach or teach. And this is the Son of God. So what I'm saying is, That if we allow our value system, what we treasure, to sort of drift into neutral, then we're going to find ourselves looking at life from the opposite perspective of the wisest person who ever lived. And what I would submit to you is that maybe today you need to question your own values. You need to question your own ideas of what the good life consists of and consider that maybe you ought to value what Christ valued. Maybe instead of pursuing your own achievements and your own success, God is calling you to a life of self-sacrifice. Maybe instead uh, of uh, pursuing wealth, God is calling you to a life of contentment with what you have. Maybe instead of popularity, God is calling you to a life in which you are willing to do what other people don't want you to do because you know it's right and God wants you to do it. A lot of you struggle with this every day. God's called you to be a mom. How many moms out there doesn't always feel successful or popular, does it? But you stick with it. You trust God. You don't veer off the path because you know that the difficulties of the present are worth it. Maybe God's called you to serve people who can't do anything nice in return. Uh, There's no glamour or glory in what God's calling you to do, but you keep going because you know that the difficulties you're facing now are going to bear fruit. You believe that God is good and that his wisdom is better and that his way is the better way and that if the Lord Jesus Christ can forego the riches and the power and the glory and the respect of other people, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can too. A person who thinks like Jesus is someone who isn't affected by losing these things. Christ's birth was a lowly, humble birth, and that's good news for anyone who is desperate. Good news for those who give their lives for the kingdom. Good news for those who say no to present pleasures because they look forward to future joys. Christ's birth wasn't good news from the perspective of people who were proud, like King Herod. He didn't like to hear about Jesus' birth. It wasn't good news from the perspective of the Roman Empire. It wasn't good news from the perspective of the the religious hypocrites who benefited from the way that things were. It was good news for people who were humble. This morning, I want to challenge you to let go of the little shreds of pride and self-reliance that you cling to so desperately for your identity and your purpose in life. Those things that you're so proud of, those are the things that are keeping you from Jesus. Those are the things that are keeping you from the one person who can save you. And so what I want to challenge you to do is 
to just unclench your fists and open your hands and say, I, I've got nothing. I am nobody in 